You are now tuned in to the Creative Ass Podcast, powered by M3 Creative. Hey guys, Michael here for the Creative AF Podcast, and today we're going to be speaking with Luke Bryant, who is a professional colorist for film, TV, and music videos. This is from our Atlanta Film Production Group interview series, so please make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube and Spotify so you never miss an episode of Creative AF. With that being said, let's get into the interview. Hey, what's up guys? Michael here for M3 Creative, and today we're continuing our Atlanta Film Production Group interview series. I have a pretty amazing guest with me. He's an extraordinary uh, colorist. His name is Luke Bryant. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you doing, Mike? Excellent, excellent. I, I understand you're coming off of an all-nighter. Yeah. What is, you look tired, I'm, bro. I'm very tired. <laughs> what is an, what time did your all-nighter start? Um, about 11, and then it ended at 7.50. So you're just looking at colors for yeah. hours yeah. and hours. So let me, let me start at the beginning, though. How long have you been, how long have you been a colorist? I've been, been working in color for about, six years um it mainly got started when i was shooting my own stuff and and i was a dp for about three years and yeah like i i had to be my own colorist and eventually just fell in love with it and so it was kind of by default because you needed the colorist so but then so it wasn't something you necessarily had like uh i'm gonna go be a colorist it was started from being a dp or just working on projects and kind of just finding your own lane doing color right and i think knowing that that was like such an underestimated part of the process yeah 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 Yeah. for sure so almost you're a da vinci guy then yeah so this is always an interesting conversation at least here around the studio when we talk about coloring and like for me i've I've always been like the running gun so i've I, i learned to edit from shooting my own stuff and then getting into my own uh coloring process what my biggest thing is always understanding the nodes versus layers. Yeah. Like, because I'm a pr- Premiere Pro guy. That's just like how long ago I started. Premiere is what I started on. So it's kind of like by default, mm-hmm. you're, you you use what you're used to, right? So can you talk about nodes a little bit? Yeah. Um, the, the node, like, I, I guess, like with like node structure and everything, basically there's different types but like the most common is a serial node and mm-hmm. that just means like you're it's kind of like in base light or and i think it kind of works this way in premiere where you're essentially layering on top right for the next node so like you start at node one node two is going to be that color information is going to be layered on top of one um and then the cool thing about like layer mixing is when you add like a layer node, mm-hmm. you're actually giving um, priority to the node below because it's like I don't know if you ever worked in DaVinci with like, negative. The, no, okay. Mm-hmm. So, I've, I've opened it and looked at it and I said, nah. Okay. Yeah. So like a serial node will be like linear, like side by side, mm-hmm. and then once you start stacking layers, they'll go vertical, and so with layers whatever's lowest mm-hmm. and you key out say you want to key out a skin tone that's gonna you're gonna give priority to the one below it and so are you having to cr- yeah. so like when you start coloring like skin tones or adjusting um are you using um mask do you use masking tools in davinci or is every it every day okay so it's all 
And in Resolve for that, is there, I know in Premiere it's like a keyframing process mm -hmm. for your masks. Is it similar in DaVinci? Yeah. Um, I pretty much track every single mask. That way it, it stays locked onto the right color, right luminance, in the right space. Mm -hmm. um, and what's kind of like one of the surprising things I learned about like advancing my skills and like really trying to like work like all of the amazing artists that are out there like the people at company three or the mill or whatever mm -hmm. you'd be amazed at how much of it is reinventing what the dp already had in mind mm -hmm. um because for example the first step is always a balance right um but if you have a window that you know like just like we were talking about earlier, like the whole fix it and post thing, like right. sometimes on set, you don't have enough time to pull down that window as much as you need to. So I'll try and equate, you know, the exposure of the room versus the light coming from outside of a window. Um, but then once that's balanced and once, you know, white balance is set and before I work in color, um, so you're doing I, like a lot of color correction on the front end is like always. Yeah. Because th you want the colors to react accurately. Right. Um, and that's especially important when you're working with like any type of like LUT or film print emulation, which I'm sure we can talk about later, but um, which that's a big part of how I work. But after you've done your balance, it's important to do what I call like local exposure mm -hmm. where you're taking of course, like the subject and you, I might mask that person out or the people and like each of them have their different values and you're recreating how the light would interact with the subject and, and refining it to make it look realistic and say like with that window, you have to bring it up and, and you're really like adjusting like individual components of the image to make it like three-dimensional i got you yeah so how much time are you spending on the 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 masking and tracking part before you even dive into like just to i guess color. prep work yeah that's it, that's essentially what it is it's like you're prepping the image and that's actually most of the time because what the typically the way i work is each scene is going to have a look but the entire project is going to have a look science to it mm -hmm. to make it unique but also like coherent you know right. and, and match um but yeah most of it is going back and forth from like working with localized color and mm -hmm. localized exposure because once you have the balance it's about tweaking the individual components of the image um yeah so let me ask you this so with 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 are you using LUTs or are you are you doing everything from scratch or are you doing a combination like once you have your your work prepped and you have everything pretty much like your white balance is even mm -hmm. uh everything's uh matching whether you you know if you're grading a cam b cam c cam you have everything lined up you're ready to give this uh project uh the the vibe and feel right that um that's actually developed for me like the way i've learned to work is develop that with the director and dp as soon as possible and if on set it can be used great um that actually speeds up the process a lot and it's something i'm working on perfecting remotely um working with dailies and such but um 
What was the question again? <laughs> no, I yeah. was like, do you do you do you grade everything from scratch, uh, or are are you LUTs. using LUTs or a combination? Yeah, yeah, okay. So, I do make my own LUTs, and I've worked with other color scientists and colors who are better than me to develop like film print emulation. Okay, and that's a big thing that I'm trying to get better at. Is like, I I really love the look of film, and I would say that like as I develop my style, like, that's something I really want to, like, hone in on, and, and, like, I've been inspired by companies like Cheat, uh, The Mill, and, of course, like, you know, everybody's inspired, I think, in color by Company 3, um, but it's definitely, like, the look is definitely pays tribute to, like, the classic film look, right? but also, it's, what's cool, like, I know, uh, Forget. Well, what program are you using to develop the LUTs? Or is it like, are you in Photoshop developing a LUT and you're bringing it into DaVinci? Or what is the what is the process for creating your own? My color scientists usually use like Nuke. Okay, okay. Um, and then they've used, I think there's a program called like Lattice. Okay. That will like allow you to like really like tweak LUTs to like a, like a extreme like precision. Um and then honestly, Da Vinci sometimes it's like mixing and matching. Mm, so sometimes you have like a hybrid, I mm-hmm. guess you would call LUT, where you're mixing. It doesn't really necessarily exist. It's taking a combination or pieces from other ones. Yeah, and LUT LUT to me is different than like I feel like when some people think of LUTs, they think of like it's the same as like look science, mm-hmm. but. I think LUTs are just a tool to, like, hone in on, like, that world that you're trying to, like, put the viewer into. And, like, right. for that scene, because each scene is going to have a different LUT, but it's not really a LUT. It's just me, like, dragging, like, the look of, you know, one scene over to another. Um, but And then having to make small, minor adjustments yeah. to tweak it to fit that exact scene. Yeah, because yeah. there's, like, two parts of there's two parts of the way I develop a look and it's like with each project, you're going to have a look science, which is like not going to change throughout the entire project. That's going to be on every single, um, it's like your baseline. Yeah. That's going to guide you through the yeah, entire and it's project. At the end of the node structure that way, because that's what everything's feeding into. And it's also gotcha. called, it's also your output transform. Rec 709 is what we work with. Today. Have you tried to yeah. color like in Premiere? Have you looked at their Lumetri? Oh, yeah. So how would you compare it to DaVinci? Like, is it, um, I think I think the thing with Premiere is it's a little bit more user-friendly as opposed to, like, I think it's real easy to get intimidated by DaVinci as soon as you open it if you've never been in yeah. it before. Yeah, um, I think, you know, Premiere has great tools. Uh, I actually, I'm, I've colored stuff on Premiere before because. Are you able to get as extensive as you do in DaVinci or wh- where are you kind of getting limited? Cause I know it's yeah. not going to be as thorough as DaVinci. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think Premiere, like if you know your tools, you can do amazing things in Premiere. I don't know my tools in Premiere as well as I do DaVinci. So I think the most important, I would just say like the benefit overall of DaVinci for me is like the OFX plugins that okay. you can use with it. And then also um, like, yeah, just tools that are 
designed for colorists and that have been designed based on like color timing in the old way we used to color correct films like um back in the old days yeah like, like resolve is it's built for coloring that's like yeah. where it's its whole purpose was to color so it's going to be it's going to be more intuitive it's going to have more of a streamlined process absolutely what is so you I, i'm interested what how before the digital age how were films colored well first corrected and then graded um pre-digital space so you have your negative mm -hmm. which think of it just like an alexa sensor mm -hmm. uh, you know kodak stock it's actually like basically just treat it the same way of course it's developed and, you know you have your negative but that's not that is not really even where the magic is a lot of people and i kind of fell into the belief that for a while as a cinematographer, like I want to shoot film and only film because film is naturally beautiful, but that's not true. Like film is a combination of your capture format mm -hmm. and your print and the magic of grading or color timing happens in between mm -hmm. where, you know, today you look at a node structure and you have your output transform and you have your, uh, area log C at the, at the beginning. Um, and you know you grade in between log C and rec 709 mm -hmm. and that's where the magic happens the same thing was happening back in the day where you had a negative and you had of course the print at the other end that we're going to watch projected but the inner positive in the middle where we're doing our color timing mm -hmm. it's the same exact process so like all of these programs that we use today you know i i think there's a misconception that like digital and film are like so different but they're really not yeah no i think even yeah. too like when you look into editing software like premiere a lot of um all the theory and the way it works comes from the original exactly. way that it was done it's yep. just now it's automated by having a computer do mm -hmm. it like coming from an editor standpoint i don't think i would have been an editor pre-digital because i don't know if i would have had the patience to actually yeah. cut and link the film but my question about like the old way when it comes to coloring because um were they able to how, how were they going to mask certain sections to color or or that is something a new control that colorists have that didn't exist pre-digital yeah that kind of came about di was was becoming more and more popular and really changing the game in the early 2000s but before that, to be quite honest with you, the DP was just... I, don't, I wouldn't say they, the DP was better, but, like, the DP knew, like, they couldn't blow out that sky. They couldn't blow out that window. So a lot of it was baked into the... Yeah. Your, uh, what we call baked-in look, right? Mm -hmm. They were getting most of it in camera to have the least amount of stuff on the back end. Yeah, and... Because um, they weren't shooting log then, or, or, or what would ever been considered log. Yeah, well, Cine, Kodak... Div Kodak actually, and I didn't, somebody, if anybody wants to fact check me on this, Kodak has had such a impact on the way we work with digital. Like they came out with Cineon Log, which is basically like the digital version of a negative. Mm -hmm. And then they, apparently they also had an, uh, they played a big role in OLED screens. Oh, wow. Yeah, because, and apparently like, 
this movement towards HDR, a lot of people view it as this, like, once we go HDR, like, it's going to be better than film, and, and this, but yeah, I think that's kind of the point, like, and I think, like, these companies like Kodak are involved with, like, evolving our, like, displays to be able to, you know, show um, these beautiful images and give them, like, the, the best uh, display options that you could imagine like hdr is kind of like you're watching a print back in you know the 90s in a movie theater like we're getting more towards that amount of information that we once had um in a theater but now we're able to see it in our homes and and with companies kind of sticking their hands in these industries and ensuring like it's basically like we're trying to ensure the cinematic experience the best of cinematic experience can be viewed from wherever right um and that it gives the creators like not only the amount of control but like that vision that they had in mind fully of like yeah so so what are you doing to or what's the process for you to make sure that your the look you're you're giving a project is consistent no matter what someone's viewing it on, whether it's on a, a 65-inch TV or they're looking at it on their phone streaming from uh, YouTube or Facebook, and it's consistent across the board. Because I know I've seen, uh, just in my own personal experience, where projects, um, and it's, pro it's something that was done incorrectly in the grading process where you're getting a different look based on where you're viewing something. So how yeah. does that consist? What's done, what's done on your side to keep the consistent look? Man, that's the hardest part. I'm like, seriously, working with clients who are not looking at things on a calibrated monitor. Mm -hmm. um, I've considered, and like, this is something I'm going to have to do very soon. Like I'm going to be invested in some iPad pros that, you, the new iPad Pros have probably the top display like specs. There are really. Oh my gosh! Yeah, like they're you. Uh, like I, you're gonna use it as your as your. I'm gonna send it out to clients and have them view like our, our live grading sessions. Where like, say I'm working remotely with somebody in LA, like they're getting an iPad from my company, and they're able to watch what I'm doing live through just like different apps um that's interesting yeah and so that's a that's kind of like image insurance mm -hmm. in a way yeah yeah yeah. you know and but as far as like because you have i'm assuming what kind of are you you're you're working with a calibrated monitor mm -hmm. in your studio right? yeah flanders am210 and then i have um i have a 4k retina display i'm actually trying to sell that but i'm um, bringing in like other like 4K monitors. Like I have my reference monitor, but then I have just like, because my AM210 is only 1080, but it's extremely color accurate. Mm -hmm. So that's my, I'm checking the color, but then I'm going back to other like 4K monitors and right. my OLED above me that's HDR. Like I'm looking at all these and I'm looking at different things. And I'm, you know, like, because like with my AM210, mm -hmm. it's 8 bit. So there's sometimes where the color is accurate, but it's not going to show me as much detail as you're not getting all the color either with mm -hmm. the eight bit, right? Mm -hmm. So can you just talk for the people that are interested? Just what is the difference in a calibrated monitor as opposed to like the TVs that we have or just our regular everyday computer monitors that maybe yeah. an editor would work on? What what's the big difference? Because I know there's a huge price difference too. Mm -hmm. Calibrated monitors are not cheap. No. Um, 
But I would say it's consistency, 100%. Like, I've never, there's never, unless I've done something wrong in the grade, um, and I've and I've checked on the Flanders. By the way, in Flanders, we'll, like, they'll calibrate your monitor for free. If you have their products, they do all that for free. Wow. That's, um, and that's they're standing here in by Atlanta. You. Oh, wow, really? That's yeah, interesting. Or Forsyth County somewhere, yeah. In Georgia. Yeah, in Georgia. <laughs> and But, um, yeah, like. It's it, it is like I said, it is the most equivalent thing I can compare to like insurance in what I do because if if your monitors are calibrated um rec seven oh nine, you're gonna get a rec seven oh nine. Can you can you kinda just not, I don't wanna go down too deep of a rabbit hole, but can you can you kinda define what calibrated means when you're talking about a monitor? Like what is actually what's the actual thing going on inside the monitor? Ooh. I know, that's a loaded one, right? That's to, a loaded question. To be honest with you, um, I mean, it is checking. It's it's checking your RGB values. Mm -hmm. uh, like, those are the big things. Um, but other than that, I, I don't really <laughs> know. And that's actually something I'd be, I've been been thinking about, actually. Just, like, what exactly it's doing. Because like, I've gone through the process. Right. Um, I haven't seen Flanders do what they do but you know like i've i've used like different calibrators because like on my other monitors they're not f flanders so i have to do them on my own but like i only see the process running where it's like flashing different colors and it's like checking them is it telling you if it's out of like if it's out of whack i guess is it yeah and it's like fixing it too so it's like oh wow yeah that's it's, pretty intense yeah but it's and yeah they're not that expensive like if you I think like my my calibrator was like 160 or something like that, and it well, was an X right. I went to so a couple of years ago. I went to Adobe Max when it was in San Diego, and mm -hmm. I went to listen to a couple of different colorists speak, and they had like you know just kind of like those drop in workshops. And mm -hmm. I guess the, one of the guys that I listened to, like he had his his monitor was like 10 grand something insane mm -hmm. and then the another thing that he spoke about was the lighting in the room oh yeah how that plays like there's this what's like you guys sh should be in a certain color temperature room that's very neutral type thing yep. before you get in there just so your eyes are seeing true color on the screen yeah bias lighting is huge um that's actually something i'm really working on to be honest with you um i'm working out of a living room right now so i have like um i'm, I'm in the process of moving but like i have like dark out shades mm -hmm. and then i have like lighting behind my screens but like you know i they've not been like they're they're not like spec lighting that's right. something like the le the best thing to do is get the led strips that like have been like made for that like, so there's a specific you can now get stuff that's gonna mm -hmm. be so you personally obviously you know it, it's it's a process that you've grown into as a colorist so you were probably at the beginning doing things terribly wrong as you as yeah. you are learning so can you notice the difference from moving into a space that has the appropriate lighting in the room the mm -hmm. calibrated monitor can you notice the difference in your grade like if you go yeah. back and look at something like six years ago oh yeah i've actually um i sometimes work at um the goat farm oh i love that i used yeah. to i used to be a share like i 
the Atlanta Photography Guild, they had, I don't know if they still have their studios there, but I was like a partner studio person where I, before I, before I had my own studio where yeah. that's where I would shoot a lot. Oh man, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I've just like from my home studio in my living room, mm-hmm. um, there's such a difference when I go into an actual studio where it's yeah. like you don't have to worry about different factors. Like it's just all set it's up right. there for you. It's right. No comparison. I, I would I would almost rather like grade on like a calibrated MacBook Pro sometimes just because like my response to everything, like my eyes are not as straining as much. Like there's right. light around you, but it's it's the right amount of light. Right. And it's not like killing your eyes and just like. So does it go into even like what color the walls are painted to? Like it needs yeah, to. I, so, I would say so. That's yeah. so in-depth. And I know, I know this for. This is perfect. <laughs> it's good and dark, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so let me ask you this. How, so how early in the process and I know, especially like if you're on an indie level, it's going to be different and you know, a lot of times certain things are bypassed just for budgetary restraints. So, yeah, yeah. but in an ideal world, what, at what point um, would the colorist be brought in? Are you working with the DP and the production designer for the color palettes that are going on in the project along with, so like maybe you're already developing the, that feel and the look that you're ultimately going to get into. Yeah. Um, how, so is that, is that the ideal scenario? That's, and then what normally happens? What normally happens is people want you to make magic happen at the end point. Fix it in post. Fix it in post. <laughs> and, and they, they have, and I had this happen recently, the DP gets a lookbook and you get a lookbook. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're completely different. Which makes no sense to me. And who's handing out these lookbooks? Uh, you, director and producer, <laughs> okay. and and you know the producer wants to be happy, and they want to make sure it's marketable. Um, ideally, though, and what I've been really pushing the people I work with to do, come to me as early as possible. And I've been like, even like, I'll send out messages all the time, and I'll be like, "Hey, what are you working on?" Because I might not end up working on that project. But if I can help that project develop a look mm-hmm. for that DP who, if they're a fan of it, some people don't like to monitor their stuff with with LUTs. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't like to view LUTs as like, first of all, we never bake it into the image. You know, it's always going to come into post raw. Right, 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 right. But... Because then you can never get rid of it. Then if you you, make it yeah, in. exactly. You can't change it. it. It it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. You can't change Superman's suit. You know? Right, 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 right. <laughs> but um, but to go into it as if w- the way I like to look at it, going back to the whole film thing, let I love the idea of creating digital negatives mm-hmm. because if we if a cinematographer knows their tools and they know how that negative is going to respond to light takes out the guessing game very similarly the only difference now is like you know obviously now we can view it in real time Mm -hmm. but dps back then were so good like they didn't need to right but now that we're able to it's again another form of insurance like if we can develop a look and and hone in on that not only does it make set a completely different experience you know Roger Deakins, 
they mm-hmm. they use that same workflow to the point where where it and this is how I really like want it to be for me in the future. Like when projects say they use me to develop the look science with a color scientist, we use it on set and we use it in camera tests to like really right. make it right. So essentially, colorists need to be in. Like I, I think when people hear the term uh, colorist, they automatically associate it with post-production Mm-mm. when it really should be pre-production production and post it should be something that you're involved with from that's, start to finish. that's what i want my company to like really hone in on just because like that's the way the industry is going and because then it kind of brings you back to the days of post is like i i can use printer lights more and it's like you know i can kind of go about it in a more old-fashioned way and that there's something more clean and organic about that process where like you know i'm looking at what they are looking at on set now i'm focused on the relighting i'm not as much like i'm focused on like the small things that really right the fine details yeah the, yeah the 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 bells and whistles that really yeah uh make it polished at yeah. the end you product. got your push and pull but then it's like okay you know uh, Mr. Deacons, like, what do we need to bring out of this, out of these skin tones or, like, out of the shadows and, you know, the tools of HDR now? It's like, what can we dig out? Right, just know? to give it that that little that little extra nudge just to make it that much better. Like I was saying, like, with new um, apps like Clubhouse where there's a lot of hangout places, but it's usually more general just to maybe filmmaking in general or mm-hmm. videography in general, is there... Is there hangout places uh, for colorists or in places where you go to get res- uh, whether it's resources, research, or just um, share general knowledge? Clubhouse mm-hmm. obviously is amazing, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm trying to open up some rooms, and I know actually some colorist rooms that are really good. They're just really small, low post, amazing resources. They have you know training. Oh, really? Low post. And that's, yeah. is that like lowpost.com? Mm-hmm. Okay. And you actually have like real colorists who devote their time to actually like teaching even down to like their go-to node structure. Wow. Yeah. Like Walter Volpato, um, I think that's how you say his name, colorist of so many beautiful films, like even Dunkirk by Christopher mm-hmm. Nolan, laid out his entire process and just just everything like anything you can imagine they have see and i and i love when experts in the field do that because you know for i think for a very long time and i'm sure you've even experienced it where a lot of professionals will sit on the knowledge because they feel like giving it is gonna work them out of a job but what people don't realize is like i i'll always share anything I can possibly share with somebody because at the end of the day, someone's going to take that knowledge and just apply it differently. Like you're not going to, regardless of what you learn from this industry expert, it's you're, you're going to take a piece of it, but it's still going to become your own at some level because you're not trying to necessarily duplicate or recreate someone's exact look. You're just trying to get a broader knowledge. So you know how to manipulate it yourself. It, yeah, and it's funny you say that because, and I won't mention any names, but there's a really popular YouTuber who focuses on color, mm-hmm. um, and there's a. I don't want even. I don't want to be a whistleblower, <laughs> right. but there's something happening right now, um, 
in our industry mm -hmm. where people make money pretending they know a lot. And oh, I can get on a soapbox about this. Yes, and you find yourself where, like, the these people are basically, like, portraying the, their success mm -hmm. or that they're successful, but it's part of a gimmick to sell their courses to you. Yeah, that no, that's... Um, no, I we have it's a pet peeve of mine. Yeah. And I've actually I don't want to say like um trolled anyone's ads, but I'm like you've never made a film. How are you selling a Right. You you've not made a short film, but you're teaching people how to be a filmmaker or you're selling a course yeah. on filmmaking and you've never made a film in your entire life. And weddings yeah. do not count as films. I don't care what you say. I and I really like I think that learning from people who are able to show you like this is what i've done and honestly to be able to learn from people where like you seek them out rather than them right. trying to bait you like walter valpato for example like this guy's worked with christopher nolan i mm -hmm. think he has like i i think i'm gonna like well, it's like you have like shane uh hubo's uh He's got the film academy. Yeah, he's yeah. got a bunch of stuff from it, and, and he shares all of his secret sauce yep. from DPing and stuff like that. And I think like the people trying to sell courses, and they're they're not. I, to me, I don't know how you, how you do that. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it's it's frustrating. And the other thing too, the the other thing that I've seen like in those course ads and previews is that you know predominantly their course is being sold to indie filmmakers or beginning filmmakers. And the reality is they're, they're presenting stuff in the perfect ideal world as to where we know as indie filmmakers, it's never going to be the yeah. perfect ideal world because you're just trying to do what you can do with what you have. Yeah. And there it's like this become a master filmmaker in 14 days. Come on, yeah. man. Yeah, exactly. never. I'm, I'm, dude. I've been doing it for 16. I'm not even yeah. close to a master. And just specifically with color, be careful of anybody who tries to sell you a LUT pack. You know, it's like the best way to do LUTs is to create your own and mix and match. Well, and here's the good thing. So, like, I, I do know where where people they'll, they'll do LUT packages and they'll say, you know, they'll name it after particular movies. Like, it's this look, but. The thing about LUTs is, like, depending upon how something was shot is going to vary how that LUT looks applied exactly. to the footage. So if you're not shooting it in the same realm, say, say like, an Avengers movie, right? Like, you're not going to be able... You can create it and call it the Avengers LUT, but right. unless you're shooting the same color science and all those different things, it's not going to apply the same way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, am I am, no, am I far off? No, you're you're completely right. There's so many factors that people don't consider, but um, the you know the best thing I would if if people are serious about LUTs, find a color scientist. And when I, they're a very strange breed, but they're out there. I'm, I they work, have to be. I think everybody yeah. in in film at some level. <laughs> if yes. you're a fil if you're a, any part of the filmmaking process, you have to be of a, a unique and strange breed. Just because we we look at life so much differently than yeah. everybody else. Yeah. So this is going to be like the big question that I know um, people want the answer to is how on earth do you price projects for a colorist? Um, I've, I thought about doing it hourly. Because Which is tough. 
It's so incredibly tough. tough. Yeah. And re- what I've had to adapt to is flat rates. And, you know, I would say that my rates are very fair based upon the skill set. And I right. think that's important for a colorist because, and like time and skill set, and um, honestly, just like, yeah, like turnaround time is such a big thing. Like, right. especially like, I've had hip hop videos, they're like, I need it in two days. <laughs> um, you know, and like the and you're getting like, it when when the cut is locked, right? Like you don't sometimes no, oh yeah, and and that's when I've had to grow as a professional, and like contracts are so important. Like you know, we're you know the film industry, we're we're a friendly community, but there's a lot of people in our industry that get taken advantage of. But there's also a lot of people that try to take advantage as well. And exactly. Yeah. So it's like don't allow your allow yourself to you know to be put in that situation. But like my biggest thing is like I don't want to be looked at as like the contractor versus the client. I want right. us both to be collaborators. And you know, as far as like how I price things out. I'm not gonna lie, a lot of times, you know, I don't even go full rate a lot of the time because there will never be a project that is exactly like this is like it's gonna equivalent. be, yeah, it's gonna be it's different every single time, every single time. And from 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 me being or coming from directing music videos, uh, it's I can only imagine on the post side for for yeah, yeah the, the especially uh, in the the urban hip-hop world it's a lot of last minute stuff yeah so um do you have it so are your base rates going to be based on obviously the runtime of something like obviously coloring a music video is different than a short film versus a feature yeah it comes down to a lot of conversations just like number of shots um there we have a creative discussion Mm mm-hmm where we sit down over the phone usually or Zoom, and I like to know specifically what they want. Mm -hmm. References are always huge, like how far they're wanting to take the look because my job, like I want to take what they want, Mm -hmm. but I don't want to just give them that. I want to give them something better. Right. So it's like I am have to take what they're saying but also apply like okay but i know like i'm gonna put this much love into this image right you know and it's gonna you know realistically shot every shot that i work on and why i had to kind of stop doing hourly it's usually going to be about an hour a shot wow like in in like realistically it's usually about an hour a shot and it's sometimes even more like i've spent i remember i've been hung up on a shot for five hours I've had to walk away and I've had come to, back to it. Yeah. There's just, and you know, there's those, there's those problem shots. So, but the price too, is it going to, so say for example, in the perfect world where they bring you in, in pre-production and you start working with the director and the DP, you're going through production and mm-hmm. then everything's ideal to what you need going into post. Mm-hmm. Because at that, at that point on the front end, you're really being compensated for your time and knowledge and expertise. Yeah. So 
the thing is, is like, how does, like in that scenario, how are you going to price it when it's just your time as opposed to the actual work itself? Because you're really just getting your project prepped for post. Um, when it's just, what do you mean? Well, so like if you're brought in through, in, as opposed to just doing the post work on it, right, where right. you're just coloring, everything's done. Mm. You got to, you don't know what you're really getting, yeah. um, but as opposed to starting at the front end and being, so like that's mm. going to obviously be two different price points, right? Yeah. Um, you, usually the front end, I kind of factor in like uh, gotcha. later. Gotcha. It, it, but it's all part of a contract, right. you know, um, especially if like they use that look science we developed to shoot their movie right um and then they want to bring it in for post but yeah it's it's varies too much to like be like really specific about it but like you know coloring is is not i'll say this if you want to work with a professional colorist paying them 250 bucks to color a three-minute music video with 127 shots <laughs> is not going to equate very well you know? right right and, right and realistically you know like you know i've worked with every single budget you can imagine right um and sometimes the reality of being a freelance colorist is that you take projects because you need the money right and you need something so ideally what is your ideally in perfect world what is the 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 full rate starting full rate starting Say for a music video, it, it's I've my on my rate sheet. It's like fifteen hundred. If it's um, if it's a two to three day delivery time, something like that, you're jacking up the price. Then even more. yeah, it 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 would go more north towards like two thousand. Okay. Um, commercial, and it really depends on the genre too, because like a commercial, you it's similar to a music video, but there's a lot of work in a commercial as far as detailing. Yeah. Um, well, the other thing, yeah. too, with music videos and what I try to, like, my price to edit a music video is going to be higher than my price to, say, edit a, a, a 30 or 60 second spot simply yeah. because in a music video, you're cutting. It's so many cuts that yeah. are happening in 60 seconds as opposed to, you know, you may live in a space of... 10 to 15 cuts on a on a commercial mm -hmm. but the music i mean just depending upon the pace of the record how fast you're cutting it yeah. there's so many cuts it's so more it's so much more labor intensive as opposed to something narrative or yeah. or, or a promo ad yeah so if it's so what would be so uh full full price starting point for like a short film and then a feature short film like say 15 10 to 15 minutes Short films, this is where it's interesting because short films are much more rooted in that look science. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, it's not so much details, but like, most important, you want to stay in a story right. when you're watching a short film or right. watch anything like that. That's going to go anywhere from like 1200 to 1500 Okay. So it's like a little, It's sometimes it's less than the music video, but... It's it's less cuts. It's, it's less le exactly, and it's less involved. It's all about my involvement, and also too, it like helps like when you have like when you are when you are specific, and when mm -hmm. the director's like, "This is what I want," right? 
it just makes the process so much more easy and, and like, well, not easy, but you know, it gives me it's a, smoother, a clear direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what are some of your, um, cause I know, and we have a lot of these discussions here at the studio about, oh, you know, like when, when, when we see jarring things in an edit or just so what are some pet peeves a colorist has when they're watching something whether it's on like you just know whoever colored it wasn't uh Mm -hmm. (laughs) skin tones skin tones skin tones are like a dead giveaway sometimes and then like um gosh um that's like the first one i think that's a big one for everybody is just like not like screwing up like is it too much orange you know especially right. like that's annoying um when you're watching a film where it kind of takes you out of it where it looks like somebody has what what's it called gonjus or oh like, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, oh jaundice. <laughs> jaundice jaundice yeah jaundice yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so that's that's kind of annoying um and then uh now are you also out, so and there's always this weird line between the coloring and say for example are you because I know you're adjusting skin tones, but are you also adjusting skin blemishes, or is that VFX? That that has been an in- increasing demand for me mm-hmm. that I am trying to get better at. That takes time. Oh, it's very time-intensive, yeah. Um, but when the money, like, you know, it's, it's, it's like when the money and the time is there, great. But, like, there's some times where, like, things don't equate that you really just have to, like, grind. Right. Um and that I've been in that situation a lot lately where like I'm I I feel like sometimes I'm, you know, grinding a little too much, but at the end of the day too, like and this is what I face with every single project. Mm-hmm. Um this is my work. Right. You know, and the thing about being a colorist is usually it's one person. Right. So you have a direct impact on that final image. So like right. there's times like with this this you know all nighter mm-hmm. you know you have the choice like are you gonna like compromise you, your integrity like your work or are you gonna like you know you just have to keep going yeah no i think i think the integrity piece is like um something we talk about a lot with my team is if we say we're going to do something we're going to do it regardless if it's uh we're taking a loss or if it's not the the full value of what we would normally expect because, you know, it can take 10, 15 years to build a great reputation, but it takes that one project that goes south and then just to undo everything you've ever done. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> in you 15 never years. Know who's watching. Yeah. And, and that's, that's always the, the interesting piece of it is how that works, you know, with other creatives like that hire you to mm-hmm. do something. Um, are you typically getting the full project like timeline or are you getting a final like how is it that your clients are giving you okay. and are you working from proxies usually i'm working with i'll everything's full res like we mm-hmm. go all out so we can pull as much information as possible xml or edl is typically well actually it's funny you mentioned that i've started demanding like edl xml both for every single project i do um 
if they some t some people are cutting on resolve which is really nice because you can just like oh that's a that's project. a that's an issue around here yeah we have but, a we have a oh a, is there a is there a well there's a battle yeah yeah yeah, yeah. we have well people like the price point of resolve mm -hmm. <laughs> as opposed to the subscription price of premiere yeah so um but i'm just like premieres i'm not going to learn another editing software i love premiere to be honest with you for cutting like, yeah no yeah i mean it's just yeah but that's just me um but that's I'm, a lot of people people that cut on premiere it, it's you know the thing at the end of the day i try to tell people is it's subjective right oh God, because yeah. there's there's no one's gonna watch something and like you know what they cut that on final cut i can tell. right <laughs> you know what i mean like I can, oh I they do this <laughs> yeah it's, so it's it's completely subjective to the person editing yeah. and it's like people want to use the tools they're familiar with yeah absolutely um so yeah. dude where can people find your stuff at um ig is like the the, the best place uh loop at loop bryant color um my website is launching july 4th okay so that'll be good. That'll be a good place to get in contact with me and just see like everything I've been working on over the past few years as I've gone full time. I definitely appreciate it. Is there anything else you want to share with us or let people know about projects or anything that you have coming up? Um, I'm, I'm actually got some top secret stuff you can't share yet. Um, well, I'm kind of getting back into directing a little bit. So Interesting. I've, I've got a music video coming up. We're going to be shooting in Jacksonville. Uh, awesome. Florida. So I'm super excited about that. Um, and I will be, I'll be doing post on that as well. So do you edit as well? Uh, no, I don't really cut. I honestly, that's, that is such a art into itself that like, I, it really is. I love I doing it. I, I think editing is so fun. Um, but I think there are so much people who are better than me and I just love it. Yeah, but they were all bad at one point. We were all bad editors at one point. Just like, I, I think nobody wakes up and just clicks with right. editing right. um but you know i think just from you know shooting like there there's actually i worked with a dp recently who doesn't edit and does not even own a camera mm -hmm. and that was the most mind-blowing thing to me i know some dps who all they do is rent yeah it was i just I think because I come from like, like I come from the background like the run and gun one man band type right. thing, so I'm like okay, well I got to shoot it, I got to light it, and then I got to edit it because yeah. that's I, I couldn't afford a team at the time, and you know I was doing video work at such a low rate, like it wouldn't make sense for me to hire anybody because I was just trying to uh, build my my catalog of work and then you know make a living at the same time so yeah. you know at the be it's the same the filmmaker's journey at the hey, beginning i feel you when i was when i was shooting i did all, all the color work you know and, and but I, none of the editing none of the editing you know that's so yeah. interesting and i didn't even it's so funny like before i sold my camera a year before i like i quit shooting and i for a year i was just the only thing I showed up t to set with was my Sekonic light meter. Wow. So I was just like, yeah. That was it. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. Well, guys, uh, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Atlanta Film Production Group. We had this amazing conversation with ex color extraordinaire uh, Luke Bryant. Make sure to check him out at his website. And until next time, ciao.